I think for us, the big thing we look for are we source for newsmakers, we source for story ideas, we think of our sessions and our events as almost like a live magazine, if you will, or a live edition of the journal print paper. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Media Voices. We're the Media Focus podcast that takes a look at all the news and the views from the media world over the past week. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And that extract you've just heard is from my interview with Kim Last. She's the editor of Live Journalism at the Wall Street Journal. We talked about what they see the role of live journalism being at the publication, how they adapted when the pandemic hit, and what they are doing to bring events to life virtually. And at the top of the episode, I mentioned that we take a look back at the news over the previous week but obviously we've been off on an extended Easter break so there's going to be a slightly wider variety of stories than normal. The reason we took that extended break is because we are gearing up for the Publisher Podcast Awards which are taking place this Wednesday if you're listening to this episode as soon as it goes live. So we want to make it as amazing as we possibly can. We've done one life rehearsal already, we're doing another one tomorrow. I'd much rather be getting in a club in London, but um, <laughs> you know, given where we're at, I think we're doing as best as we possibly can. But to begin with this episode, we're going to start with our news roundup. And the main story that we're choosing to focus on is the fact that uh, Mal Magazine has been funded by, oh, had rather been funded by Dollar Shave Club since it's launched in 2015. But on the 20, oh God, when was it now they announced that that partnership was coming to an end? 26th of March. Right. As a result of which... It was a tweet, which, wasn't it? It was just a tweet that just yeah. out of the blue. And as a result of that, 23 staffers have been left without jobs. Um, so what does this... I mean, does this say anything about the wider branded content model? Or is this just a blip in terms of both Mail Magazine and how we're going to fund magazines? What is fundament, what's going on here is fundamental to the, brand, to the branded content model because there's a quote in that from uh, Editor-in-Chief Josh Schollmeyer um he says let me put it this way i don't think it's ever great to have a single source of funding every day every day of the company was pretty existential for me we weren't part of the core dollar shave club business and that's exactly the point that's why you know the print magazines that the mattress company started (laughs) and uh, you know all of these things they're at the mercy of who's funding them well, they're, they're a marketing yeah. channel, effectively. And, you know, we've seen, uh, particularly over the last year, we've seen so many marketing channels and platforms just kind of get excised from plans. So to the point that Mel Magazine was ever integral to Dollar Shave Club, it was as a kind of, you know, up, upscale marketing channel. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if this is one of the situations where they didn't actually have the opportunity, or they weren't given the opportunity to fulfill what they could have done in terms of monetization. Because mm. I can remember thinking, Peter, you spoke to Josh a couple of months ago. And I yep. remember listening to that interview and just thinking there's a lot that they could be doing in terms of monetization here that Dollar Shave Club just don't seem to be interested in pushing. And that's great from an editorial perspective. meant that they got the chance to develop a really, really strong voice without any financial pressure. But at the end of the day, like Dollar Shave Club never gave them the chance to really make themselves sustainable in that sense. No, that was the point. It was, it was absolutely a marketing channel. So they never ran any ads for anything, you know, for anyone else that was non-competing to, to Dollar Shave Club. They didn't do anything like that. Um, well, until about three or four weeks ago when they announced that they were yeah, going to launch three three paid newsletters. 
which would have been like that would have been their first kind of first real revenue stream and yeah the closure announcement then came a week or two after that it was quite quick there's two things going on here there's the failure or the ending of the relationship with Dollar Shave Club mm. and that's completely separate with whether Mel is a good media brand and I think it is it's not it's not the kind of thing that I would read particularly but it was really really solid in the sort of stuff that it did well yeah you're right there are two things going on here one is Dollar Shave Club's priorities and one was Mel Magazine and they yeah. just kind of parted ways there uh, there's a there's a great quote actually in there from Josh, um, which you've mentioned in the notes. Can somebody read that out because it's fantastic? Yeah, so I think they've had um, they've had a number of investment inquiries, but Josh has been quite picky about who he goes with because he says that they won't compromise editorially. That he says I'd rather leave at the top of our game than die by a thousand paper cuts. And that, I mean that's so kind of <laughs> that's so on brand. <laughs> Uh, you know, he the background. That interview is a great interview, actually. No, I don't mean my part. <laughs> I don't mean my part. I mean, I'm a, I'm a great interviewer. Actually. Yeah, I I did a great job on that interview. <laughs> People no, talk he about was... you know Andrew Neil and you know David Frost, but really it's it's all been Peter Houston all along. Move over, Pax. <laughs> no, he was he was a joy to interview because he was just you know he knew what he wanted to say and he, he was just brilliant, but. He has background. He'd been at Playboy before, um, but he'd been on the uh, on the kind of product side at Playboy, and, he, and you know he was pretty honest about it. He said he pretty much came to hate it. He said he was just doing this kind of corporate style promotional type stuff for for brands, and and when he set up Mail, it was absolutely against that. It was I mean, some of the stuff that they covered is nuts. You know, they they did some pretty edgy stuff, and you know some stuff you probably wouldn't want to be reading when you when your <laughs> auntie came in the room. You know, some I'm sure some of it got read in incognito mode. <laughs> um, but then you know they 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 did a whole thing exposing Asian, you know, uh, the increase in Asian uh, anti Asian violence or violence against Asians in the mm. states and. Um, they, you know, they did some serious long form type stuff. They're, they're so, quite a, quite a large female readership as well, didn't they? I think was he saying yeah, about forty percent of the yeah, yeah, audience was female, and and that was what really excited me about the newsletters is that they, the first newsletter they were going to launch was going to be for that female audience. I think they'll be back. I definitely do. I, I you know, then when he's back, or when when those twenty three people were back. They are going to be facing exactly the same problems as everyone else is, is facing. Is do they go on membership <laughs> paid subs yeah. model? Do they take ads? Do they stick with sponsored content? They're just going to be, you know, in that sense, from a, a funding point of view, they're going to be back where everyone else is. But you know, that's a game. So I suppose the question then is: to what extent is the halo effect around having a magazine like Mel? Under the aegis of Dollar Shave Club and you know its its contemporaries, to what extent is that halo effect always going to be just as shaky as re- a revenue source as any other? You know, is this just exactly what we've been saying for years? You cannot have that single source of revenue. You have to diversify, it and you just can't necessarily have the freedom to do that under, you know, a brand that ultimately isn't a publishing company. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> no, the point with that is that so there's two again there's there's. A couple of things that are worth looking at with that. 
they had a decent run. They had six years where they could pretty much establish that brand and, you know, to a large extent, do what they wanted. One of the tweets I saw was really interesting. It was someone going, what weight? Mel was actually a marketing channel for Dollar Shave Club. I never knew that. Uh, you know, yeah. and that was a the point. There was it was a very loose relationship. So they had those six years to build that brand. I'm sure any any senior editor or a publisher that a brand comes along and says, Okay, here's the money and we'll give you, you know, you've got five years to build your brand. Yeah, okay, I'll take that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but is that but, is that not is that not where the error was though? And and I get that there's probably things that they weren't allowed to do as part of that relationship, but should they have three years into that started saying we need to be starting to build up you know, maybe not paid newsletters, but we need to be starting to build out revenue streams just in case they cut the purse strings. Maybe Dollar Shave Club didn't want that. They, yeah. They didn't want the complication. I don't know. Yeah, hard to say without having, you know, being yeah. privy to the internal discussion. I mean, but... yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Are they Are they the sort of um, magazine, do you reckon, do, is their audience large enough that they could do it as a membership sort of thing? Mm, don't know. I mean, they've got four four million uniques. Hmm. I think even even their newsletter, they had like sixty thousand people on that, and it was a forty percent open rate. They had a re- like really strong relationship with their newsletter readers. Okay. Yeah, I think the people that they're they're not um, they're not vice in that no. sense. They're, I think they're narrower, and they went deeper in a lot of ways than vice on on a lot of the stories. So yeah, maybe. Um, I don't know, Jesus. If I knew whether they would, <laughs> if I knew whether they would succeed as a membership publication, I'd be worth a shitload more money than I am. <laughs> That's true. Moving on now to the news in brief for this week, and according to some new forecasts, the advertising industry is poised to return stronger than ever this year. Marketing budgets are usually the first thing cut in a recession, and but because this has been this big predicted consumer bounce back, everybody looking to spend, everything's looking slightly rosier than it was in 2008. Um, and Facebook is bringing its local news section to the UK. This isn't Facebook news, this is this is something else. Um, but the idea is that users can see at a glance what is happening within their hometown or city simply by adding that location to their feed. So Facebook says that they want to drive traffic to local sites, helping publishers to reach new audiences. Let's hope there are still local publishers left. I, was gonna, I, I heard Peter sigh halfway through that. Well, just the... you know, if this wasn't Facebook... If this was someone that was saying, oh, you know, we've got this really cool thing and we know where you are and it means we can target local news, uh, you'd be going, oh, that's amazing. That's such great technology. That's fu- but it's fucking Facebook. Talking about being depressed. Yeah. BuzzFeed has said the pandemic contributed to a 16% drop in revenues from its editions outside the US, which are actually run from London. Um, good news for BuzzFeed. It's reduced its operating losses by 60% selling off operations in Germany and Brazil, but at the cost of news operations in the UK and Australia. And the HuffPost deal, um, well, HuffPost is not coming out well, or staff at HuffPost are not coming out well. No, they're not. We saw, you know, we were talking about last time, in fact, the very last episode we did, we were talking about, you know, Jess Brammer and not knowing what was going to go on with her team. And yeah, it sounds like everything just got cut, which is, it's terrible. BuzzFeed have really, really come out badly for this in terms of how they've, you know, their practice and priorities yeah, around right. what they're planning to do. I mean, BuzzFeed news people did a great job, but HuffPost recently has just been knocking it absolutely out of the park. Yeah. Moving on then, platformers Casey Newton has launched a virtual newsroom with other independent reporters called Side Channel. 
So Slack Channel is a Discord server which paid recipients of his newsletter will be able to access. And it's kicking off this week with Zuckerberg, one Mark Zuckerberg, which uh, as, kick off. <laughs> as their first guest. Because yeah. because Casey actually another shameless plug for an episode of ours. But Casey <laughs> Casey mentioned this when he spoke to us about this um, again back in September when he first went solo. He said that he wants to assemble this. Um, my mind's gone completely back. What, what Avengers like side channel yeah. assemble group. No, it was it, it was a Scooby gang. He said he wanted to assemble this Scooby gang of like independent <laughs> oh, reporters that, yeah. and come together and do and do things together. And to, be, to to have the welling to be able to pull Mark Zuckerberg as your first guest on this, I mean, like fair play. Yeah, that is it's it is a completely fair play, and I think it's really interesting that they would sort of. They've eschewed everything else and they're just going straight to Discord, which has all the functionality of basically every other platform and it's just quietly been chugging along for years and years. Yeah, I mean, at, least, at least they're not doing it through uh, something that's only accessible by iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Vox Media has acquired Cafe Studios, which is a podcast-first publisher focused on the intersection of law and policy and politics and news and business. That's a big intersection. Yeah, this... Um, so that acquisition... <laughs> My favourite social media network, TikTok, is uh, financially backing the production of a new series from publisher Now This called Viral, which will feature interviews with public health experts and a live Q&A session focused on answering questions about the pandemic. There's a pandemic. Um, <laughs> I think this is interesting for TikTok because, actually, I think this is interesting for Now This and TikTok. Now This does some brilliant stuff on yep. social platforms, particularly on Facebook. And the fact that they're doing this on TikTok is interesting. But I think it's cool that TikTok seems to be funding stuff that's away from people doing stupid dances and <laughs> trying to eat yeah. weird stuff and making funny faces. <laughs> Spoken like a man who's spent many, many hours on the platform. Please, somebody help me budget this next one because I don't understand it. So Substack, you, yep. we all, you all know Substack, has announced Substack Local, yep. which is a program to support a new group of up to 30 local news writers on this platform. Yep. On the face of it, great. We need more local news coverage. We don't want any more news deserts. You know, So they're setting aside a total of a million for this, yep. which doesn't include expenses. That's 30000 per person plus a 15% cut of the subscription revenue they generate in the first year. How... That, yeah, an, they're seeing it as an advance, aren't they? Yeah, they are seeing it as an advance. Does that... How does that work? That's not enough. <laughs> well, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Well, they haven't said that they'll distribute it evenly. They have said that actually they'll oh, pay it was. They, they said they'll pay up to $100,000 to selected local journalists, mm. and they'll also get 15% of the subscription revenue they generate in the first year. Um, right. So, yeah. <laughs> it's another friggin' PR stunt. It, it might be, but they... Okay, so they've, they've the way that you do it is you apply to be one of these people, and then they get some judges to basically go through your proposal and say, you know what, you're going to be one of the recipients of this money, up to 100000 per person. Um, and the judges are four subset writers who are very, very clever... But they don't have necessarily local that news. local news experience. Yeah. Although the the program itself does have mentors who have worked within local journalism. So where, how do you judge the quality of local journalism if you don't necessarily have that first hand experience? Uh, and how is how is a newsletter going to fulfil the role of a paper? You know, how is one local journalist 
I can see that they're going to disseminate like court reporting or, you know, lo- local news. But how do they fulfill the other functions of a local newsroom? I think you've got uh, you've got to look at this as it's not perfect, but it's a start. So, I, yeah. Having just said it's a PR stunt, <laughs> um, I, I think you've got to you've got to see well if it if they if there's a proof of concept, then they, it can maybe not so much that Substack would support it, but that people can say okay, two or three people can get together and create a local newsletter, and yeah. it will be self sustaining. So from that point of view, it's interesting, and, and it's so easy to be cynical about. That that's kind of stuff. My worry for all sorts of yeah, reasons. Yeah, my worry is is based on the you know the problems we flagged there. That this is almost it's not being set up to fail, but it's not being invested in enough to make it worth the time. And then after the fact, people will look at its failure and go, "There is no money to be made in doing mm. local newsletters." That's my worry. I yeah, think Axios Axios will set that one straight. <laughs> yeah, mm. or Forbes. <laughs> uh, Reuters has put its newly redesigned website behind a paywall so I think it announced its intentions to do this late last year and it now wants readers to cough up $34.99 a month to access its content which um, that's apparently the same as the Bloomberg digital subscription I don't understand that price point at all there's been a lot of criticism of it yeah that just makes no sense to me but no good good luck to Reuters what's the is that like a is that the start of a funnel to you know get people to pay for them that you know them more Hi, hiring, yeah, yeah. Almost but that's yeah. that doesn't make any sense. But actually, me. that maybe that's a point. Maybe they're looking at it as people just put it on a corporate account, like a business. It's a business expense, and that's why they'll pay that kind of money. What what's the FT's subscription? For digital FT thirty three pound a month. Yay! Yeah, very close. I'm pretty good at this media. Yeah. Shit. Yeah. Right, do I, do okay. I even give away tote bags? This week, I spoke to Kim Last, editor of live journalism and special content at the Wall Street Journal. So I began by asking her what live journalism is and what her role as editor involves. So live journalism at the Wall Street Journal is exactly what it sounds like on paper. It is live interviews hosted by our journalists in front of an audience. Uh, I oversee a team of journalists here in the newsroom where we build agendas, we source our newsmakers who join our programs, and we work on the subsequent news coverage that you would see uh, when we have a newsmaker who breaks news on stage. And is that a fairly new team at the Wall Street Journal? It is, it is. I actually just passed my three-year anniversary at the Journal, so I'm relatively new. And it is a young team. Uh, in a lot of ways, I like to think of us as a startup inside a well-established, well-oiled machine, which is the Journal Newsroom. Um, in your background, you've got a background basically in um, sort of conference production. Um, yep. What's the difference between how conference production works and how you see this kind of live journalism team? Yeah, it's it's really different, and and but also production values are a key part of this, right? So my background and my career, I started out in uh, sort of traditional digital journalism and fell into events by almost accident, really. And what I found there was there was a whole platform around leveraging events to create moments that could drive impact, that could drive news, right? And so, you know, the production qualities are really important to this, right? The fact that 
you need to keep <laughs> in these days in these virtual events, the fact that you need to make sure people's internet connection doesn't drop during their interviews, right? Like that's a really important piece to this, right? Um, making sure that audience members can ask questions, whether that's live or pre-taped or in a question box that they type. The production values are really actually, uh, I'd say rather important to all of this. And my own personal background, so like I said, I started in digital journalism. I had a stint at Fast Company Magazine where sort of sat in the news side and and worked on live event franchises. You know, I think for us, the big thing we look for are we source for newsmakers. We source for story ideas. We think of our sessions and our events as almost like a live magazine, if you will, or a live edition of the journal print paper, right? Uh, we investigate ideas. We talk to interesting leaders across business and media and technology. And we look to have them say things that are really interesting that we then want to disseminate to our audience. I like the idea of his live magazine. That's, a, that's quite a nice analogy. Yeah, yeah. And I, like I say to a lot of folks, when people are like, what is live journalism? Uh, it's really another edition of the Wall Street Journal in the same way that it's our, our, there's a print edition, there's a digital edition, there's video, there's audio, there's social media. And there's also this exciting new uh, growing live component. So you said you've been in the role for three years. I mean, the last 12 months are going to be very, very different. So can you kind of talk me through what changed in March last year and, and what, yeah, sort of what did the events look like either side of that? I mean, everything changed in March last year, like, like everything in the world. So before all of that, the live journalism portfolio at the journal consisted of in-person events that would take place around the world. Uh, ranging from our CEO council gatherings in places like London and Tokyo and Washington, D.C., to our in-person Future of Everything Festival, which was three days and attended by thousands of people, uh, all the way to our Women in the Workplace uh, Forum, which was a full-day event we hosted in San Francisco. Uh, you know, the measurement of, of success were butts and seats, right? And <laughs> yeah. just making sure that room had the buzz and the energy, right? Like that was one indicator of success, right? Like you wanted to be, you know, not to quote Hamilton here, but in the room where it happened. <laughs> um, and all of that obviously was turned upside down once the pandemic hit, right? Uh, we had to quickly and swiftly put a pause on everything that we did and go, okay, uh, what does it mean to be virtual? Do people actually want to tune in and watch webinars? What can we do to go beyond the webinar look and feel? What can we do? And, you know, this was sort of, this really sat in my universe and realm. Who can we get to participate in this? And, you know, really the silver lining was, you know, of course, when we were in person, we assembled newsmakers, right? We've, we had a great sort of cohort of business leaders uh, from across the spectrum. But now that we're virtual, I mean, our track record in this last year has been incredible. Uh, newsmakers ranging from 
Elon Musk and Eric Schmidt uh, to Sarah Cooper right at the peak of Sarah Cooper uh, to, you know, if I look at this year, we had Jerome Powell, uh, you know, the chair of the Fed and uh, really dominated the business news cycle the day he appeared on our virtual stage. And so I'd say the thing that's really different now is, yes, while we physically aren't together, um, the sort of halo and reach of the journal and our live events is larger than it's ever been before. And it's exciting because it's really now growing from there and we're finding really unique ways to engage with our audience, uh, to grow our audience. And what I think is really exciting is dominate parts of the news cycle with what we do, with the questions and the sessions that we design for our stages. And, and were there hurdles you had to overcome when you were first putting this together? Or was it fairly <laughs> easy to hit the ground running? <laughs> uh, it was not easy. Uh, and, you know, luckily, like you, you've mentioned, I'll, I'll go back to the production piece again. Um, you know, there is a whole team of wizards behind the screen, I call them, here at the Journal and at Dow Jones, who are our partners in this, right? And are the people who handle the tech checks with every speaker and every one of our journalists to make sure that you know the zoom connection isn't going to fail uh who build out and you know have so have totally pivoted from a role where they may have handled uh hotel arrangements and the menus of what you would eat at our physical conferences and are now building and coding event platforms now right um so it's all different and it's all changed and of course there were hurdles along the way right like we had no idea that zoom was going to be the thing that powered the engine to all of this but Zoom was the best thing when you can't really control someone's internet connection at home or if they're working from some Airbnb somewhere or some rental from, you know, halfway around the world, right? Um, so that was a quick learning where we had to make that adjustment and, and move fast. Um, you know, the same thing goes around even uh, audience development on this, right? We're like, how many people are actually going to uh, sign up for a free event and show up, right? Like we started yeah. to see there is at least a, at least a 50% attrition rate. So if we want 5,000 people to listen in and tune into this, then we must make sure we got at least 10,000 people registered, right? Um, so there's all of these sort of, you know, I don't even think they're that they're that special in terms of insights, but they're just what we have learned along the way and have helped in terms of designing contingencies to make all of this successful. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned the Future of Everything Festival, that that used to be a you know, three-day in-person event. What does that look like as an event? Because I think that's coming up in a couple of weeks, isn't it? So what, what does that look like as an online event? It is, it is. And, you know, the festival back in the day when we were all together in person, it was the largest event franchise at the Journal. Um, just in terms of the breadth of the program, two stages, I think up to more than 90 speakers 
We really made it an inclusive experience for our colleagues in the newsroom to participate as moderators. I think we've had somewhere between 35 and 40 moderators when we were in person. It was like some folks have, t have said to me in the past, it used to be like journal camp, right? Because everybody yeah. would get together and do this. Um, and now that it's virtual, um, it's bigger than it's ever been before. Um, you know, the exciting bit on this is that we're really aiming to have close or more than 50,000 registered subscribers uh, log on during the three days. We've kept oh, wow. a lot of the DNA of uh, of what the festival used to be in person, meaning you know back to back newsmaker conversations, interesting, intriguing voices who are rising, kind of interspersed in between those sort of big moments with you know an Ed Bastian from Delta, you know followed by a uh, Dwayne Wade Gabrielle Union conversation right so we still kept yeah. that sort of DNA to this and I think what's really exciting is that you know my colleagues on the conferences team are really thinking deeply about what's a networking experience in all of this um, they're looking at, at, at you know designing new ways to do that when you were online and you know not bumping into, into someone in the line to get your cocktail right during the happy hour so what does that look like because i think that's something that a lot of people haven't cracked is is that kind of networking no and and quite frankly it's all an experiment for us too right um <laughs> but what does that look like it, it's it's a couple of things um it's finding ways for people to find connection if they happen to have an interest in a shared area or a shared industry. So one thing we're experimenting this year is we'll have, and I was just on a call this morning about this, um, we will have uh, attendees sort of identify if they're interested in AI, for example, or they work in the tech industry and they wanna meet people in those same realms. Um, you won't be able to access the festival platform until you fill out and personalize a profile where you check all those boxes of things that you're interested in. So it's like it's like kind of speed dating. It is. What they've been calling it is almost like a Tinder for business where you would be matched with folks who are, you know, of like-minded, you know, thinking, hopefully, and of interest. Um, but yes, that, that's one thing that we are piloting this year that we're going to, you know, try to launch. And if it's successful, Hopefully it will then be applied to some of our other events. So you mentioned uh, that some of your events earlier were free, but the Future yeah. of Everything Festival, um, I noticed when I looked, it actually got ticketing options. So yeah. how have you found audiences have kind of responded to, to paying for virtual events? Because that, that's been another aspect a lot of publishers have really struggled with. Yeah, um, we have found that um, it's working. Now, the price point is a lot different than what it used to look like uh, for an in-person event. Um, you know, there is a, there's a bit of a gate fee. It's a low mm -hmm. gate fee in some cases, right? Um, you know, for some of our events last year, it was as little as $50, you know, where I would say it's a case of where it's just enough where you feel like you can either cover it yourself or maybe your company can reimburse you for it. And just enough too, so that we can ensure that you will participate and hopefully log on and show up. Yeah, um, I think that's the big thing here too. And you know, the other sort of big 
new thing that we're trying this year with the festival in particular is it's linked to a journal membership, right? So okay. this is this is a chance where it is a part of your subscription benefits. And that's really exciting. We have never experimented with that before. Again, you know, I sit on the on the newsroom side of things, but my commercial colleagues have really shepherded sort of a new model for that. And it will be, again, it will be very interesting to see how, you know, when we look back on how this all looks and feels, um, it'll be really interesting to um, to see how that nets for us. Yeah. Uh, what sort of things, um, networking aside, what sort of things are you doing to bring the experience to life online for attendees and really kind of keep up that, the connections and community with events? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think from a, from a news content standpoint, what we're always trying to do is pick the most intriguing person for that moment that we're in, right? And then, you know, there's a trickle effect. There's a halo effect out of that, right? Um, when you have somebody who is of the moment, you want to ask that question. You're not holding back, right? So hopefully you're interacting with the chat. You know, we are, we've experimented with having attendees send us pre-recorded questions. Um, so, you know, hopefully somebody on that agenda sparks interest for you. Um, so you get to participate in that way. We're also experimenting and uh, bringing on attendees to ask live questions, again, to, to really up the ante on the interaction component here. Um, and that's really important to us. I'd say that that's one way that we're really trying to shepherd this along to kind of break through, again, the Zoom boxes we are all currently <laughs> living in and that I think we may still continue to live in even once, you know, we're at fuller vaccination. Yeah. Have you seen like, any kind of Zoom fatigue from people or, or are people kind of just a bit picky about what they join these days? Oh, of course. Of course. I mean, look, and I think that's where we try to get as smart on this as possible, right? Especially around timings when we host things, depending on the audience and depending on the session and the speaker, right? If we have a program that is designed for, you know, working working individuals, working professionals who have kids at home, really a bad idea to do it at 5 p.m., yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, we're going to make that a lunchtime program. We're going to market that to you as such. And we're going to make sure our speakers are sort of really targeting to that our audience, right? And that our journalists are going to be asking those pointed questions for tactical, practical advice. You know, but then we've also had a lot of success with having entertainers in the evening. You know, if I look back in the last year, we had our Women in the Workplace Forum and sort of the end cap of that evening was a conversation with Sarah Cooper and Tignataro together. And that was one of the most highly attended sessions. And it was sort of like the popcorn moment okay. where, you know, at the end of the day where there was a lot of practical solution oriented discussions um, this was sort of the the nightcap of okay, let's let's bring on some entertainers to really dive into how this has worked in a place like Hollywood. And when things start to get back to normal, what mm -hmm. will the Wall Street Journal's live journalism section look like then? I think we are headed towards a future of hybrid events. If I were to take out my crystal ball, I think the the real plus side of this has been the reach 
of building new audiences through our virtual programs and the reach of convening a newsmaker um, or newsmakers plural who we would have a tough time getting them to commit a whole day to us getting them to fly in a plane to show up at this particular time and, and this particular moment right so there is a real value to you know sort of that virtual flexibility um, now that being said hybrid i think is is where we're going to be moving towards and in in the immediate future outdoor events which luckily before all of this we were hosting some outdoor outdoor programs already with our um, tech live conference in particular we used to have a whole evening outside so you know there's already you know some expertise there uh, luckily so you know, with the festival, we're hosting a, a drive-in experience in Brooklyn, New York on the second <laughs> evening of the of the festival where there will be a screening and, and a discussion afterwards. And again, just sort of embracing the things that didn't get shut down during the pandemic that were popular, that were of in the zeitgeist of the moment and could really elevate the experience. But look, I, I mean, I think you know, we talk to a lot of CEOs, some are racing to get back to the office and to what it used to be. I think others are really finding the value of the remote lifestyle and the remote sort of nature of hybrid events and, and online events. And I think we have to be somewhere in the middle, right? Yeah. Because the audience growth has just been too good to sort of let it go away. And also it's inclusive, right? Like it is a privilege at the end of the day to be able to expense a ticket, to travel, to spend on the hotel and the T&E. And, you know, I think this just allows us to be just way more inclusive in a way that um, we weren't before because it just, it, it just wasn't the norm. Yeah. Do you think we'll ever see kind of the, the festivals of, of tens of thousands of people turning up to things again? Yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think it will take a bit of time. <laughs> <laughs> I think there'll be a lot of safety precautions around this. But yes, I do think I think concerts are going to return. I think I think festivals will return. I think all of these things will happen but i think the big question will be what do you do for that digital audience yeah right like what are you what are you going to do for the people who who can't make it in person who can't go to bonnaroo in person right what are you serving up to them i've forgotten how to be around a lot of people <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i think i do question when we all emerge out of this um, what's everyone's comfort level going to be around that, right? Because some people are, there will be some PTSD out of this for sure, right? Like there will be some folks who may not feel as comfortable in a crowded ballroom with chairs on top of each other or in a packed tight, uh, small round table, right? Where you're jamming 12 people in a, at a table that can really should be seating only 10 right but <laughs> yeah, that's what yeah. but that's what all event organizers do because it's the buzz it's the you know you want people you want people to have a little bit of that FOMO yeah yeah and then the last thing we ask all our guests is what's the last thing you read or watched that really affected you 
I will tell you something that I have been watching ongoing that has really affected me. There is a great jazz uh, pianist named Emmett Cohen, who in the New York jazz scene is uh, quite the name. And, you know, his whole world, obviously, all of these musicians have have had their worlds turned upside down because they're not touring anymore. And for the last 50 plus weeks, he has been hosting a live streamed uh, session on Facebook Live and on YouTube uh, called Live at Emmett's Place. And every Monday night, he's got a great sort of jazz set with special guests and just really interactive and fun. And, you know, I look to people like that as a little bit of inspiration in in what I do and what we do here at the journal. Um, And on top of that, it's just really impressive to see people like that who can sort of, again, pivot and sort of showcase their resiliency through all of this. It's one thing I would love to ask an artist like that, because I think as they go back to their sort of regularly scheduled touring schedule, I could guarantee you he's probably going to be still doing some sort of home-based show because <laughs> there is a little bit of charm in that and also a little bit of just normalcy, right? Of like being able to like sit in a jazz club and listen to good music. So first up, I'd like to say on behalf of my colleagues and co-hosts, thank you so much to everyone that has given us money on Ko-Fi. We love you for it. Mm -hmm. But just a little word to the wise, if you really wanted to do it on a regular basis, we now have a monthly subscription option. If you like to... $34.99 a month. (laughs) I will send you a tote bag. Uh, <laughs> if you would like to support us regularly, uh, which we love you for, yeah, and we give you shout outs and we put your name in the newsletter and we talk why why are you why are you making all these promises we haven't discussed? And if you do need another reason to support us, remember that we don't just do this weekly podcast. We also put out a daily newsletter which contains a link to the four most important stories, a link to the latest episode, and occasionally we've got pictures of cute babies, or I might include a picture of uh, my new family puppies in the next one I do. So that'd be good. Um, so you can go sign up for that at voices.media. Just follow along when it says sign up to the newsletter and you'll receive one the very following morning. And finally, with all this talk of virtual events, we've got the Publisher Podcast Awards, which this year, sadly, are virtual, but we're looking forward to being in person again next year. But because it's virtual, that does mean if you haven't yet signed up for a ticket, you can actually still sign up. Um, just stick your head around the door and see Chris <laughs> in his shiny suit and us in our <laughs> shiny suits. <laughs> yeah, yours yours is very shiny. I'm, I'm very shiny. Yeah. Um, so you can go to publisherpodcastawards.com forward slash tickets and it's free to sign up or again, you can throw some money if you want. But until, well, I suppose until Wednesday for those of you who are going to come along or until next week when we're going to be back with another fantastic episode of Media Voices with a very, very interesting guest, please do stay safe and enjoy the sunshine. Bye.